Welcome to the FT Advisor podcast. Just please bear with us. Obviously, we are in lockdown still and the sound quality may not be quite as perfect as you're used to. But we hope you enjoy this podcast. The title of it is Democratizing Investing. Now, at first glance, this might sound peculiar. After all, surely anybody can buy shares, put money into a fund or take out an ISA. But that's actually part of the myth of the product creators, not the lived reality of many people. A lack of financial education and understanding, an overwhelming amount of investment jargon and a compartmentalizing of financial news away from general news and consumer papers has led to a division in perception, namely that those who have money can invest and those who do not have money, well, they should stick with premium bonds or cash. But the issue goes deeper than that. Many companies will issue shares in a way that benefits large institutional players over retail investors. Issuers often prefer potential bulk buyers and provide them with a sort of information that is often not permissible or readable by the average retail investor. To younger investors and those with lower amounts to invest and those just starting out on their investment journeys are often stymied by old fashioned and outdated systems that make it easy for pension funds or investment houses to buy bulk shares, but not really anybody else. All that, however, is changing. Financial advisors have already been quick to adopt technology that helps you do basic financial planning for younger or less wealthy clients. And many of you already do excellent work in schools and colleges to help people become more money savvy. With us today on this podcast are three specialists who have seen how fintech and financial literacy can help revolutionize investing and make it a truly democratic process. Joining me, Simini Kriaku, editor of Financial Advisor, are Ruth van Hoofer, a senior investor in fintech for Gals Ventures, Michael Kent from digital money transfer firm Azimo, and Anand Zambasavan, chief executive of Primary Bid. Welcome all. Hi there. Thank you. Hi. Hi there. Hi. Um, let's start with you, Anand. If I may ask, what do you think has hindered young people and retail investors from getting involved in investing in the past? I think it's a, it's a number of factors. Um, at Primary Bid, we focus on, on one very specific thing, which is um, helping retail investors participate in new issues that listed companies do. And um, historically, uh, you know, any company, whether you're a FTSE 100 or an AIM company, um, will always need to raise money. And more so now in, in an environment where outputs of have reduced and, and valuations are low and, and companies are finding themselves having to, to rebalance um, uh, their balance sheet, so to speak. And uh, raising, raising money at a, at a discounted price at favorable levels, recapitalizing the balance sheet, and then seeing this amazing relief rally that happens on the back of it. Uh, so to date, for context, there's been uh, about 68 deals done in the last eight weeks, you know, raising over 8 billion, Euro, uh, 8 billion sterling um, and uh, delivering um, close to one and a half billion pounds of value for investors who had who are lucky enough to participate. And, and those investors are, as you said, you know, it's institutional investors and company insiders. And retail investors never had a chance to participate in these accelerated offerings because they're too fragmented, deals are very time sensitive, and there's all this administrative burden that goes on with taking these orders. So historically, they were excluded and they remain excluded, even though the technology exists today to include them. So uh, at Prime Bid, we, we've, we've created um, the, the, the platform to 
dovetail alongside the investment banks and, and that process uh, to include them in accelerated offerings. And, and we've been very successful at it. Uh, recently, we completed a deal for, for Compass, uh, which is a FTSE 100 company. And it's the first time uh, in history that, that a FTSE 100 company was able to use um, or do a retail offering alongside an accelerated institutional placement. Um, IWG, the FTSE 250 company, quickly followed suit. And, um, and now we're seeing retail enfranchisement alongside institutions on these, on these deals. Hmm. Ruth, I saw you nodding to, uh, uh, along to some of uh, what Anand's been saying. What do you think perhaps has hindered retail investors from getting involved in, in equity in the past? I mean, I think, as you mentioned in your introduction, a really big key barrier we still have today is obviously financial education, which is something that we see increasingly being built into the school curriculum. But we also obviously see a number of apps out in the market that are trying to um, educate younger people at a much earlier stage about the importance of savings and investment, which I think is the first particular point, and also giving them different options and almost in a gamified way, um, allowing the younger generation to get access to this. So I think apart from the fact that um, there's obviously a, a challenge with disposable income, and I think if we look at the current crisis, there's certainly a number of households in this country that have other priorities, such as getting the family fed, and we shouldn't forget this, um, there is a financial education piece and there is a technology play around that that is now slowly taking shape. And that is exactly also why in lockdown people have taken more time to look at these options. So my hope is that with offerings that were just explained increasing in the market, we actually also will get an increased participation as the new generation comes to it. That's very interesting, Ruth. And you've obviously touched on tech there. Michael, from your perspective, has a lack of technology been a big factor in preventing younger or smaller investors getting involved in the markets? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the huge promise of fintech is actually a, a reduction in the cost to serve. Um, because historically, the people who've got you know access to, to market opportunities and to equity and, and good education and, and, and research are the people who have either you know a high net worth, they've got private banking, they've you know they've been very well looked after by obsequious bank managers from the bulge bracket banks. Um, but if you've got you know a hundred quid a month um, uh, over the to, to to spend, it's been very very hard to put that money into the markets to to get the same level of information on opportunities, and you've got to really want to do it. So you know um, I think the, the big opportunity for you know the whole wealth tech sector is really to say. Why don't why don't we use technology to reduce the cost of giving you know good service in terms of investment to many many more people? And you can actually make that you can't make the business model work of um, you know Goldman Sachs investment managers um, or, or UBS or any of those companies work by just accelerating the number of face to face meetings they have. But you can digitize some of those interactions and then push it out to many more people. And actually, it's it's interesting that you talk to you know we we have a lot of um. Um, led with our team and we try and do as much financial education for them as, as possible and particularly when you put in things like pensions that people are you know really not focused on at all we sort of try and bring home to people just how much they're going to have to be responsible for their own financial freedom going forwards i think that probably covid has accelerated that <laughs> um, if you look at the sort of 
the, the the monetary and fiscal state of the UK government. That's not going to it's not going to be a pretty place when when people in twenty years time when when people are older. But we spend a lot of time trying to trying to educate them and, and get those messages out. Uh, and, and people are much more comfortable um, among that sort of that age group of doing it all on an app. In fact, you know, if it's not on an app, they're they're, they're slightly skeptical that it's for them. Now, Michael, both you and Ruth have mentioned uh, COVID and the lockdown as being perhaps a time when people are paying more attention to their finances, perhaps reevaluating some priorities. Um, Ruth, if I can come back to you, uh, while of course people are using this as a great way of, um, or a good time to sort of get to, to grips with their financial situation, do you think it's also helped people become more aware of investing or the sort of apps that might help them save more? I mean, it's a great time to actually start getting getting sorted, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, even if I look at my, my circle of friends and Michael just mentioned pensions, I think people actually now are looking at all of those things that they have to put on the long ladder for a while. Um, and pensions is certainly one of them. But I think um, a critical piece that we've seen accelerate the savviness of digitization almost forced upon certain parts of society was the fact that, of course, um, cash was no longer used in most shops. And so even the elderly generation had to sort of switch from a cash mentality, from an over-the-counter branch mentality to, you know, getting a card, withdrawing cash at the ATM, maybe downloading a bank app um, and starting to move even funds and savings in that way. And I think if we look maybe at the middle segment and at the younger segment, that increasingly, of course, then also spurred activity and um, and curiosity in applications that allow savings. So we've got obviously a number of very interesting tech savings platforms in the market, and we see an increasing number of wealth tech platforms. And I think this sort of cross-generational um, sort of digitization boost that the crisis has given us through the fact that we move from cash to cashless has acted as an accelerator into this space. And I truly think that people actually have now really spent more time in reading up on opportunity. I totally agree that it has to be further simplified to make people interested in this space because some of those you know, uh, meter-long prospectuses are certainly not something that uh, the retail investor can deal with. But I think we, we're starting to really see this um, digitization happening. And I truly think that this is a, a key point of moving this forward um, at pace. Um, Michael, did, has, has Azimo seen any sort of uptick in activity or any big change in activity over COVID lockdown? Um, I mean, yeah, so the, the, we're, we're a point-to-point -point, uh, cash transmission business. So, you know, we, we move money around the world for people. Um, and so it's, it's people wanted the money to be in our system for as, for as little time as possible, which is probably the opposite of a... Um, of a sort of regulatory wealth tech um, business. Um, but yeah, we've seen a huge spike in new customer numbers. Um, and though the existing customers are sending much more often, they're going into their accounts much more often, and then we're about 100% up over the course of the, the crisis on what we would normally expect in terms of new customers coming onto the platform. Um, so it's been it's it's been very, very busy for us. Um, and, and that's also the case at uh, Tandem Bank, which is a, um, a, another company that I founded, um, is run by my business partner, Ricky Knox. You know, um, Tandem was founded on the basis that, you know, we should be helpful to people um, and technology can allow people who don't have as much money as, you know, um, other people to get the kind of service that, 
you know, everyone should get in, in terms of finances. I think that the other thing that is driving, you know, people to to do more on the financial side, yeah, we're not only clearing out our cupboards and painting our sheds, we're looking at our financial futures, which is fantastic, probably much more worthwhile than cleaning out the, the cupboards. Um, mm. We're we're also um, seeing a lot in the news about volatility in the equity markets and, and the disruption that it's having on the economy, and that gets people thinking. You know, unfortunately, it doesn't always get people thinking. Well, there's this sort of history of retail investors seeing stock markets plunge and then selling all their equities, which, um, if you're you know if you're an experienced investor, is not the best thing to do. But you know, it's in the news all the time, and people are thinking. You know, what is my stock holding? Do I own any stock? What? How should I think about my portfolio allocation? Have I even thought about this? And and you know that's good and if you look at it's it's also cultural you go to america and you talk to the americans a lot of the stimulus checks that trump sent out went straight into equities yeah uh, argument that actually the retail investors drove some of the, the sort of big uptick in, in some of the sort of very well-known brand name technology companies that have you know recently done very well on the public markets um but you go to you go to germany and you know nobody wants to put any money into equities bonds are bonds are where it's at so you know there's a mm-hmm. We're becoming more American, I think, um, and you know, culturally, we're that's that's getting disseminated out, but we've still got a way to go. And and what's your view on this? Because you've obviously seen quite a lot of activity over the past uh, few weeks. Yeah, indeed. Look, we're um, seeing plenty, particularly in the capital raising front. And and I think just taking a different different perspective on it, um, it I think what COVID has done is is it's forced industries that have you know just been stagnant to to have to forcibly adopt uh you know digital methods to uh to their business lines you know it's it's funny if you if you look at um uh, every industry in the world they have uh they've got they've digitized they've automated yet you know that the financial system particularly the capital markets is sadly totally recognizable still and what covid has done is is just say that look you, these systems and these processes have to automate have to be more digital and because um, until now we've been stuck in some weird sort of financial time warp, if you will, um, and I think that, um, that that's kind of where primary bid came in, and and that's why we've been quite successful in the last um, few months because um, our platform is is completely automated. Uh, we have it's end to end digital. It allows a retail investor uh, to to participate in a deal in a way that even the institutions cannot, you know, and. Um, so it's been this incredible upgrade to a, a, a system that's up until now been, uh, you know, quite uh, uninnovated. Can we go into a little bit more detail about the sort of technology that's being used to help smaller investors get access to these investments? I mean, you, you've been very clear that in the past, um, the big institutions have kind of taken the lion's share. Yeah, and, and it's true. I mean, look, if you think about how publicly listed companies raise money, bearing in mind that the stock market is sort of 400 years old plus. Um, and if you sort of think decades ago, pre-internet, com- listed company needs to raise money. How do you do it? And its answer is quite simple. You say, okay, well, I, uh, you call your biggest, deepest pocketed investors. They need to raise you know, 1 billion. You get 100 million from each and from 10 investors and, and deal done. Um, but you know, imagine then for a second, we were we were tasked today with saying, all right, we need to figure out capital formation for listed companies. And the answer is it would look nothing like it does right now. It would be digitized. It would be democratized. It would uh, be mobile-led, mobile-friendly, and all of those things. And, and that's what Primary Bit does. So 
um, in in a in a deal that we do, uh, which typically prices a discount to the market price, um, it's open for a few hours, and normally only institutions get access to that deal. Uh, we have a, a a mobile app and a and a and a platform which will push notify uh, the deal to to users. They can understand the transaction. Um, they can get all the you know use of proceeds, all the information around the transaction, um, and decide to invest uh, all via their mobile. They can then do that. Um, and then and then direct those shares to be settled uh, into wherever they have their brokerage account. In the UK, that you know, is the Harvey's Lansdowne, the AJ Bells, the Interactive Investors, and so on. Um, and then you know, in, in the US, it's it's your familiar names out there. Um, and and that's how we dovetail into the process. And it, the take up has just been incredible. You know, we've uh, done uh, over sixty deals. Uh, you know, we've raising anywhere between a million to over twenty five million per deal. Um, and uh, we're we're doing now we're at a point where we're doing you know two to three deals a day, which is um, you know so companies uh, are seeing the value of this and banks are seeing the value of this and we're we're really um, adding um, uh, to the ecosystem and, and and not you know it's not a disruptive model so to speak but much more collaborative and and um, an open model. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, it definitely fits into the palm of your hand, and I can see sort of Michael uh, agreeing with your points, particularly on mobile phones. Um, Michael, if I come to you, uh, and then I'll uh, come to Ruth, just looking at how mobile technology is perhaps the young person's investment tool. Yeah, I mean, it uh, it, it definitely makes everything um, a, a lot easier, and you, it's it's the the sort of the, the financial experiences that people are used to. There was quite an interesting piece that was around a couple of weeks ago on, on just how many clicks it takes to open a, a neo bank account versus a um a traditional uh a high street bank account online, both online. And it's it's three to four times more onerous in terms of what you have to do to to open a traditional bank account. So the the processes and the sort of heavy lifting are, are significant. And you know the the kind of people. So I think it's interesting if you look at in America, there's businesses like Acorns and there's businesses like Robinhood that have really sort of democratized um, share ownership and equity ownership. I think there is a bit missing, and I think you know primary bid is is, is great, um, and it's it's actually sort of democratizing. Um, you know, discounted share issuance to retail investors, that's great. But there's a bigger piece here, which is around education. And if you look at, you know, the average person, um, even people who are, you know, very well educated working in the tech sector, um, you talk to them about, you know, some of the stuff that the, the lingua franca that we all understand around, you know, portfolio allocation, um, focusing on assets, you know, rebalancing, not over trading. Um, and people don't really understand that. And what, I, what I'd like to see is, is more of the sort of mobile apps offering that kind of educational piece about, you know, your future financial planning, as well as, you know, the very specific parts of the value chain of investing that, that need to be broken out. But yeah, mm -hmm. apps, is, apps is a huge part of that. Yeah, like a, a translation tool. That'd be nice. Uh, Ruth, can I come to you looking at this education piece? Because you've touched on that previously in this conversation, too. Yes, I mean, it is really the phone is at the center of everything we do these days. And I think just to uh, echo the message that uh, both gentlemen have just given, it is about simplifying the messages on the apps. And maybe uh, depending on the generational focus, I think there is an element 
um, I previously mentioned around gamification, make it easy to relate with something new, also take away the fear. Because of course, what investors normally read, your money is at risk, there's no guarantee that you keep it. And if you combine that with what we see in the market right now and the headlines in the press, it's very easy that people get more intimidated even in terms of investing because of the you know conservative, I have to protect my assets versus uh, being more adventurous and experimenting. And I think it's really about um, sort of giving that core financial advice on on your personal finances to say you've got that much deposit, disposable income, you've got that much that you save per month, this is the amount that you could put in the savings kitty and this is maybe the element that we would recommend you play around investing without putting yourself at risk but also with starting to realize the opportunity of upside. And I think if people slowly get into that rhythm, they can over time potentially take more informed risks. But right now you have more of a black and white situation where either people are incredibly scared and the stock market doesn't instill that confidence at this point, whilst others um, may actually experiment too much. And what we have seen, of course, is that um, the more sophisticated investors have been doing quite a lot of uh, um, distressed asset buying and things like that in the market, but this is not the target audience we talk about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're sort of running a bit short on time now. Unfortunately, I, I could sit and discuss this all day. I'm finding this absolutely fascinating. But if I could just ask um, sort of each of you, I'll start with Anand. If you could choose one more thing, just one more thing that would help democratize investing further, particularly for retail investors, what would it be and why? Anand, I'll start with you and then go to Ruth and then go to Michael. Um, look, I would I would uh, go on the side of regulation. Uh, right now, uh, the EU um, says that uh, any deal that's done without a prospectus is, is that's open to the public has to be limited to eight million euros. This is a hard cap on how how big a public offer can be, and in today's world, no deal is getting done with a prospectus. So, um, in December, there's an opportunity to to increase that number and and then thereby improving. Uh, the democratization of these deals. And, and I would say uh, that would be a key win uh, in this mission. Excellent. Thank you, Ruth. Yeah, um, regulation is indeed the key point. And I think translating that regulation that hopefully gets more simplified and investment encouraging into then the technology space, because of course, technology will have to play within the boundaries of regulation. So make the laws more simple, increase therefore the access and translate that into usable interfaces that are um, more easier to take up. Excellent. Michael? Right, and mine's a bit more low-tech than that. Um, I just think, you know, we, we need to rethink how we educate people. Um, and I don't think anyone should be able to leave school at 16 or 18 without a basic understanding of, you know, how capital markets work, how investment works, how shares are owned, how companies are owned, and how they can participate in the wider economy, you know, beyond what it is that they're immediately doing. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that we don't teach kids at school um, these days, but I think investment and, you know, how to look after their own financial future and take control of it is probably the most important. Excellent. Well, I'm afraid we have run out of time, but Anna and Ruth and Michael, just want to um, thank you so much for everything you've done. I really appreciate that. And uh, I want to thank you, the listeners, also for listening. It definitely appears that removing jargon, using tech more effectively and efficiently, encouraging more young people to become investors, and perhaps even getting the regulators on board. These are all going to be key to making investment more democratic and helping more people to become financially independent. Well, that's the hope anyway. Thank you for listening. And until next time, take care. 
Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.